Welcome to the Food Freedom Fertility Podcast. Here, we discuss the challenging, rewarding, and life-changing process of recovering your period and finding freedom with food and exercise. Whether you're hoping to regain your cycle to get your health back on track, or you're ready to become a mama, this podcast is for you. While the recovery process isn't always rainbows and butterflies, it's my hope to bring you both information and inspiration during your own recovery journey. I'm your host, registered dietitian and fellow HA woman, Lindsay Lawson. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Food Freedom Fertility Podcast, HA Recovery and Beyond. I am bringing on another dietitian, an expert in PCOS, and ironically enough, she has a uh, podcast. She's the other Food Freedom Fertility Podcast. Mm-hmm. So Caitlin Johnson is a registered dietitian with advanced training in functional medicine and women's herbalism. She is the heart behind her company, PCOS Fertility Nutrition, and co-host of the Food Freedom and Fertility Podcast. She is someone who struggled with infertility and is now a mother to three beautiful children, a born again believer, prays for each of her clients and has helped many hundreds of couples become parents. Welcome, Caitlin. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. I'm excited to bring you on, not only because our podcasts are aligned, but um, I just get so many questions about PCOS, not my area of expertise. Mm -hmm. I know a little, but... um, especially for those who are trying to conceive and do find that they have PCOS. I just have so many questions for you. And I know you are the best resource for those um, who do have PCOS and are trying to conceive. Um, so I want to do a quick little icebreaker and then I'm just going to jump in and, you know, pick awesome. your brain and ask you all the questions. Yeah. But, yeah. Let's um, lay it out there for people. All right, let's do it. Um, what is your preference on climate? Are you more of a hot or cold weather person? Oh my gosh. What a great question. Sometimes you get those icebreaker questions. You're like, I don't know. I I do know the answer to this. I I prefer cold weather. I would love nothing more than like cloudy skies, some rain and a warm cup of tea and some soup by a fire. Yeah. Okay. I think I already know the answer to this one because Caitlin and I were chatting for like 15 minutes before we got recording here, but when's your most productive time? Are you more of a morning Morning, person? Totally. Uh, like even people who are like, if I needed to pull an all nighter to write a paper or do something, I would like work until 1130 and then sleep from like 1130 to four and get up at four and finish it. Because mm-hmm. I just cannot, after a certain point, I'm worthless. Like don't even try. Yeah. I, I really struggle with staying up late too. I mean, I think yeah. especially after having kids, it's like yeah, you know, nine or 10 o'clock is funny. Okay. What about are you a cake or pie person? Neither. Neither. Do you like desserts at all? Or I do like desserts and I do like sweets. I don't okay. feel great when I eat them personally, struggling with insulin resistance over here. So um, but pies, I like savory pies. Like I like a turkey pot pie. It's my favorite thing about Thanksgiving is making that afterwards. I love a pastry crust, don't get me wrong. Yes. But just the sweet like sweet, sweet desserts don't really do it for me. I'd much rather have like a scoop of ice cream or we have homemade croissants and it is happiness in your mouth. It is like the most divine thing. All right. Last one. What would you rather have in unlimited amounts, money or time? Time. Yeah. Easily. Three kids. I can imagine in running a business and no nanny. I'm like, that's the one currency I don't have enough of. Um, yeah. Yeah. The help. Yeah. Yeah. That's like a whole different one. Yeah. Well, Caitlin, can you share with the listeners who, you know, don't already follow you a little bit about what you do and why, like, you know, as dietitians, a lot of us are just trained to like go to school and either work in a hospital or help people lose weight, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you specialize in PCOS and infertility. Tell us more about how you got here. Yeah. It's definitely a personal journey. I was diagnosed with PCOS at 18 after I gained 60 pounds in three months and had gone off the birth control pill. So I wouldn't be like tempted to have sex with my boyfriend. And like, that was my desire for going off the pill is like, if I'm on the pill, I know I'm going to have sex. Mm-hmm. So, um, the mixture of intense exercise And coming off the pill, which had been kind of masking my PCOS, it was like this perfect hormonal storm of, um, rapid weight gain that had no true, like real life calorie merit to it. Meaning 
I'm sure I wasn't eating great. I wasn't eating terribly, nothing to warrant like a 20 pound weight gain per month. That is so many calories you'd have to eat. And so I didn't know much, but looking at the picture, I was like, something's wrong. Something's not right. And went to the doctor and had like the worst bedside manner doctor ever. They, I went in with my concerns. They scheduled me a day for ultrasounds. They took blood work that first day. And when I came back for an ultrasound, the doctor came in after the ultrasound, I was still in that like crinkly white robe you're in. And he walks in and he says, I was right. You have PCOS. And I said, what's PCOS? And he said, it's the number one reason in America why women can't have babies. Now I was 18 not trying to have babies, not in a great relationship. And you know, that was, that was not my immediate goal, but I had a stay at home mom. I had the best mom and I wanted to be a mom someday. I knew that much. And it felt like this, like blow, like, why does this condition I know nothing about mean that I'm not going to be a mom or it's going to be harder to be a mom. Mm -hmm. So I said, what do I do about it? And he said, I'm going to put you back on birth control. I'm going to um, give you a prescription for metformin and, uh, you need to lose the weight you just gained. Didn't give me any instruction on how to do that. You know, I was kind of like, that's partly why I was there because I was running like 20 plus miles a week training for a half marathon. I wasn't eating great again. I wasn't eating terribly, you know, I was like, how do I even lose weight with what's going on Mm -hmm. in my body? Mm -hmm. And he had very little to offer me. So I left wondering why I got put on a diabetes drug. What actually is PCOS? Like for all I knew, it could have been cancer. I really didn't know. And one other question I had asked him was, okay, so you're going to put me on birth control, but this is why it's hard for people to get pregnant. What do I do when I want to get pregnant? And he's like, well, you come off the pill and you come back and we give you different medications. So didn't tell me like the medications are made to help me ovulate. And that part of my issue is that I wasn't ovulating, like nothing, so little. So I started doing research and I, at the time I was a year through a two-year Christian Bible study program, decided that I was going to finish the Bible study program and then try to study nutrition somewhere because I figured nutrition had to be a piece of the puzzle. I also had a mother that struggled with fertility and being overweight and I didn't, and I like now for the first time in my life was really overweight and didn't want that for myself for a number of reasons at 18, you can understand. <laughs> and, um, I also thought like, well, if I do something with nutrition and excuse my language, I know this may be triggering, but I'm just going to tell you how I thought about it. Mm-hmm. If I work in nutrition, I can't be fat my whole life. So I'm going to have to figure out how to be skinny is what my like 18 year old brain was thinking. Mm-hmm. And, um, so my motivation to learn about it was really to control my own body and control my destiny to be able to be a mom someday, never really saw it beyond that, like a bigger why. Mm -hmm. And the more I got into my education, went to a great, very science-based school, got a degree in nutrition and biology and realized that I didn't agree with a lot of what. I was even being taught about nutrition and I use agree very loosely. It was evidence-based. It was science-based, but it was very much how to help after disease was present. Yeah. And the opportunities to help on the front end as a dietitian, which is what I was pursuing to be seemed very limited. So I kind of always saw myself forging my own path in some sort of private practice. I just didn't necessarily think like, oh, it'll be for PCOS. Mm -hmm. I may have read a paragraph about PCOS in my undergrad and never heard about hypothalamic amenorrhea. And, um, it was, it was definitely like my work with a naturopathic doctor, my work with an acupuncturist, my work with, um, a primary care physician slash kind of like my OB that was a little bit more holistically minded that I started kind of weaving an education together about PCOS that once I was done with my internship, like on the first day of my internship, our director asked us like where we saw ourselves in 10 years. And I was like running a private practice, helping women. I didn't really have it narrowed down to PCOS or fertility, but by the time I left my internship, 
I was about ready to get married and had weaned myself off of hormonal birth control. My PCOS seemed really well managed at this point. And yet when we started trying, we struggled to get pregnant. And so that's Mm -hmm. when I really like deep dived, I would say into fertility and fertility with PCOS and kind of my husband and I still joke about it. Like he was like, he would always come into the room and call me Dr. Johnson because I had like research papers everywhere. They were red, they were highlighted. They had like those, you know, flag things for important stuff. And any article got read and reread. And like, I started kind of like trying to weave together things because the OB that I then went back to and was like, we've been trying here and it's not working. She had nothing to offer me. And yeah. She, I said, I don't even know if I'm ovulating. And she's like, well, that's a great question for us to answer. And the way that she told me to do it was to buy a million OPK strips, start peeing on them from day 14 of my cycle. When I was telling her I had a 60 day cycle, like she, she didn't even demonstrate to me that she knew much about irregular cycles. So I had to answer a lot of those questions alone with my own research and, kind of with my Christian upbringing and training my parents and kind of this Bible study program I did, one thing that was kind of ingrained in me is to not walk by a need. And I felt like, you know, like little things like trash on the floor or in a full dishwasher that's clean. Like you don't just walk by it, you deal with the need Mm -hmm. up to like a a heart that needs to be cared for. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, I was just getting walked by in the medical system. They had nothing Mm. for me, but medications and they didn't really seem to be like doing root cause medicine. It seemed like slapping prescriptions on a problem Mm -hmm. and those prescriptions were creating their own problems like nutrient deficiencies or anxiety. And Mm -hmm. I, then once I figured out my own fertility issues, I saw this like valley of need of women not being helped. And so I already had a private practice and I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is, I'm going to be the expert. I'm going to change the statistic. They told me when I was 18 and got this diagnosis, like, I don't want somebody, my daughter, particularly my firstborn is a girl. I did not want her to be me at 18 or me at 30 wondering if I was going to get to be a mom, like the statistic needs to change by that point. And like, my goal is to help as many couples as I can. So that happens. Yeah. And you're absolutely changing that statistic. I love, you know, that, that background. I think that how we both got into private practice is very similar and trying to kind of solve our own fertility issues, especially whenever you're getting run through the medical system and you're like, no, this doesn't make sense. And you putting me on medication is actually making problems worse. I love that. But I also think our stories are really different in like what PCOS is and what AJ is like hearing you tell that story. I'm like, these are so different. Why is there so much confusion in your opinion between does somebody have AJ and PCOS? Cause I work, well, I would say at least half of the people that I've worked with have been misdiagnosed with PCOS at some point. And likewise, I don't think my statistic is quite as high on people coming to me for PCOS that actually may have HA. Um, cause I think it gets misdiagnosed more often that somebody has PCOS when they actually have HA and not you have HA when you really have PCOS. Uh, yeah. But I think that the main thing, like, you know, remember those Venn diagrams, you draw a circle, draw another circle and they overlap. Overlap of the two conditions. The main thing is the lack of a cycle or a really long, irregular cycle. Right. And, um, even in my own fertility journey, by the time I was trying to get pregnant, I was in normal weight. I was not in a big body. I wasn't in a small body, but I was normal weight. And I, like, I checked the boxes for that. And yet I didn't present overweight. I didn't present with lab figures that were insulin resistant, you know, like I wasn't the typical phenotype. And that's a fancy word for saying like the expression of what was going on in my body for the listeners. So I would go and say like, we're struggling to conceive. And I would have a doctor say to me, you don't have PCOS. You're not overweight. 
Mm. And I think that HA it's almost the opposite. If you're not in a really small body or very slender, um, people think it's probably not HA. And likewise, if you're in a PCOS body and you check all the boxes for PCOS, but you're slender, it's like you, maybe it's not PCOS though. Recent years, there's kind of two terms of PCOS that seem to be coming up that I don't honestly think we have enough research on. And that's lean PCOS and post pill PCOS. And I, I wonder about HJ too, if there's this idea of, oh, it's post pill PCOS. You just came off the pill and Mm -hmm. you're not getting a cycle and you have some of the other things that might look like PCOS, but actually it was just covering up the fact that you had HA all along. Right. It's definitely tricky. So for our listeners, how is PCOS diagnosed medically? So the current medical diagnosis would come from a doctor. So Lindsay and I don't have a scope of practice that really allows us to diagnose. However, I bet you would agree with me that you are often probably the first person that helps somebody get directed to the best diagnosis for them. Um, I I actually had a client who came to me for just a one-off visit to review labs and supplements. Sometimes I open up a few visits like that. I saw her in August and she was a, um, a physical therapist, very active, super type a had a baby already got diagnosed with PCOS after having that baby was struggling to get her period back and um, was trying to get pregnant with the second baby. And I went through everything, super deep dive on her. And I was like, you don't even check the boxes for PCOS. Mm. Let's do a food recall. We did a food recall. We talked about her very active job and how much she worked out. And I was like, you have hypothalamic amenorrhea. I'm just sure of it. I, I sent her your page and I told her, I want you to stop working out for three months. I know that's gonna be really hard on you. And I want you to eat close to 3000 calories a day. Cause she was really, really under eating within, within a month. She didn't get her period. She was pregnant and she hadn't had a period or ovulated in over a year. And she hadn't been breastfeeding for almost two years. So it was one of those moments where I was like, this woman has been failed. And she sent me a (laughs) testimonial. She's like, in one visit, Caitlin got me pregnant, three reproductive endocrinologists, more than two, just normal medical OBs. I had a primary care physician, a naturopathic doctor and an acupuncturist and nobody nobody asked the right questions to get to the root of the problem. So while Lindsay and I cannot diagnose, we are oftentimes the person that's like, I think like the safety net of like, it walks like a duck. It quacks like a duck. It's not a duck. That's actually a goose. (laughs) Like, you know, so I'm going to answer your question what PCOS is, but I think that maybe dietitians are undervalued in the treatment. It really gets me thinking though, Caitlin, about how can we make this better? Like, could there simply be a list of 10 questions you ask someone when they come and they say, I haven't had a period in six months or, you know, a couple, maybe a lot of my clients. Let's do that. And then let's copyright it and sell it to every OB and fertility clinic. (laughs) That's our million dollar idea. The specific criteria that in my opinion should be used today, but I think that things are changing and I'll give a little caveat asterisk at the end. You need two of the three following things and ovulation or oligoovulation. So you're not ovulating at all, or you're ovulating very infrequently. Now this doesn't mean you don't bleed. Okay. This is where it could be confusing. You can actually bleed every 30 days and still not ovulate. You can bleed every 15 days, still not ovulate. You can bleed consistently and still not ovulate. There are other reasons for bleeding other than when your progesterone drops after an ovulation. So irregular or absent ovulation. The second is the presence of small cysts. They usually appear around the edge of the ovary. It kind of looks like a pearl necklace, um, very fancy, like bougie way of saying small. Um, they are not cysts. They are follicles that are getting stopped in their development throughout a cycle. They should be like 
getting to that like early 20, I'm off to college phase, they get stuck with pimples at 12. Okay. They don't move past that. They're, we call them arrested development, not like um, you're in jail, but like it's stopped, put your hands, mm-hmm. on, they're frozen. Mm-hmm. So the appearance of that on either ovary or both ovaries, but just one ovary is enough. Okay. And that is diagnosed, um, via a pelvic ultrasound. So it's okay. not trans like an abdominal ultrasound. It's transvaginal. Okay. Um, and then the third is either, lab work that shows high levels of androgens. So androgens are a fancy way of saying male hormones. I recently read, um, Aviva Ram's book that she just came out with and she calls them the huntress hormones, which I prefer. (laughs) I think it's a great name because they aren't male hormones. Everybody has them just like males have female hormones, like estrogen, progesterone. They just have it in such lower levels. right? Right. So the androgens we're talking about typically are testosterone, uh, DHT, DHEAS. So that's um, something that your adrenal gland makes. Those are the, the usual ones that we look at, although there's others. So you can either have lab work that shows that or an outward appearance, physical symptoms that would align with that. That would be something like male patterned hair loss male patterned body hair growth. So on the chin, on the neck, on the nipples around the groin, like further down your leg than normal pubic hair, or like a really strong, what people call a happy trail between your belly button and your pubic area. Usually it kind of follows the midline. Okay. A little bit of back hair, but not typically that's not really where I see it. Um, and Something that's kind of important is consider your heritage. Some people, um, you know, like I, we joke with my podcast partner, Sophia, she's very Italian. She's like, everybody in my family has a mustache, like everybody. So it's not a sign of PCOS for me. It's a sign of my genetics. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something to think about. The interesting thing about a PCOS diagnosis that oftentimes people can cite those three things and say, you need two out of the three of them. You can also have three out of the three of them. Then you're really lucky, right? Not, (laughs) um, it's a diagnosis also of exclusion. So there can be other things that manifest similarly that cause no ovulation and potentially something like hair loss. Okay. Uh, that could be hypothyroidism. Hypothyroidism Mm -hmm. can shut down ovulation and it can make your hair fall out. So you would check two of the boxes. You have signs of high androgens Mm -hmm. and you're not ovulating, Mm -hmm. but that's not the same thing as PCOS. So a diagnosis Mm -hmm. of exclusion means we've eliminated every other thing that could have potentially caused this, like a pituitary tumor can stop Mm -hmm. ovulation, Mm -hmm. um, hypothyroidism, hypothalamic amenorrhea. Mm -hmm. There are some other like much more random things. Um, there's a disorder of the adrenal glands that can also cause it. So really a true diagnosis is very imperative for proper treatment. And I think one of the things that probably makes Lindsay and I most frustrated is when you go to a doctor and you present with symptoms and all you're offered is hormonal contraceptives to make it better. I'm not bleeding. Oh, well, here's the pill so that you can bleed monthly. I'm not bleeding. So are you not ovulating? You're not ovulating. Here's a medication. It's like, there are, those can be helpful. And I'm not anti using things like letrozole or Clomid or anti Mm -hmm. the birth control pill. And I've even recommended some people go to their doctor and get put on those things in the past, but I am anti lazy medicine and not using informed consent. And I see that way too often with PCOS where a true diagnosis, they haven't actually excluded other things and done thorough lab work um, where they're only offering medication when in like the guidelines for treatment of PCOS, like internationally developed guidelines with experts from every area of medicine, where they say diet and lifestyle is the first line of treatment. Some doctors aren't even offering a referral to a dietitian, or they give like 
terrible nutrition advice because they've never studied it mm-hmm. and it worked for them or it worked for one patient. So now everybody needs to go keto or everybody needs to interrupt, <laughs> you know? So, um, I, the, the overlap and the confusion between HA and PCOS is I think a lot of times because of that overlap in anovulation or oligoovulation. Um, but there's also this thing that people are calling lean PCOS where they're checking a couple of these boxes. They have Mm -hmm. cysts on their ovaries and they have maybe signs of hyperandrogenism, but they don't struggle with one of the symptoms that sometimes happens, which is weight gain. And I have seen true PCOS in lean individuals, Mm -hmm. but something that's very common in them is most people in that category also struggle with insulin resistance. They just don't get the particular symptom of weight gain. Okay. Yeah. I think it's interesting too. When you talk about elevated androgens, are we talking like, you know, high end of normal, a little bit off the chart, or are we talking like way off the chart with androgens? Such a good question. Both. So what, what will be confusing for a lot of people is that you go to any lab, you get things drawn and usually you get given your lab value and then a range, a quote unquote, normal range. What's wrong with a lot of these normal ranges is very often they're not made for women. Okay. So you could be looking at a range for DHEAS that would be normal quote unquote for the population a 17 year old man or a seven year old man or a 30 year old woman. So if you have a number of like 300, that's within a normal range. And yet anything over 200, I start seeing as symptomatic for somebody. So they're well within a normal range Mm -hmm. and yet we're starting to see it drive symptoms. So particularly with androgens, a lot of times the lab reference ranges actually aren't female specific. Yeah. So I do have like a narrower range that I would call quote unquote normal. Typically the other thing to know about some of these values is like vitamin D for instance, which whether you have HA or PCOS optimizing vitamin D can lower your risk of miscarriage once you do conceive, but our, our range that we call quote unquote normal is a normal range to help somebody avoid very extreme symptoms of malnutrition, essentially Mm -hmm. it's not optimal. And so again, with these androgens, what may even be quote unquote normal for a specific person, when we're doing patient specific, like very good quality, um, interventions, we want to be looking at it an individual even because what may be quote unquote normal and good for a woman may actually be too high for this woman because Mm -hmm. her ovaries are extra sensitive to testosterone. Mm -hmm. So, um, it can be both. It can be off the charts high. I've seen crazy off the charts high. I've seen really normal quote unquote lab values and still see cycles that aren't happening, ovulation. That's not happening, happening. Um, and symptoms that are just difficult. And the thing I think for a lot of PCOS is the symptoms attack your very sense of, um, you know, your identity as a woman, you, your hair falls out, you grow facial hair, you can't ovulate, you struggle to, um, get pregnant, like all these things, your body should be able to do. Mm -hmm you may struggle with acne and typically with PCOS, people are, are in a bigger body. And that is something else that women struggle with for their mm-hmm. self-esteem. So it's like everything that you want physically or everything that you hope your body could be able to do. Even breastfeeding can be a little bit more challenging with PCOS because of the high levels of, of androgens. And so you're, it's like every turn, you feel betrayed by your body. And one thing that I really focus on in my work, my free work and my podcast and my Instagram and my paid work is helping women learn to trust their body again. And instead of feeling at war with to come from the other side of the table alongside your body and sit next to your body, hold your body's hand in a sense and realize, okay, we do have some genetics maybe that are at play that are working against you. Maybe some environmental things that are working against you that have manifested to develop this condition PCOS, but 
we can learn about it and work in harmony with your hormones versus feeling like we're trying to work um, kind of in battle with them. And I think that that, that mind change, like, okay, how can I love my body? How can I support my body? How can I work with my body actually is really freeing for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I still just can't get over how incredibly different I think PCOS and HA are. Can you, you mentioned two terms that I think are really interesting. You said, you're not sure you totally agree with them. What Tell us about, let's start with lean PCOS. And then I want to hear more about the definition you're hearing about post-pill PCOS. Yeah. So lean PCOS, when somebody says that, honestly, I don't see that really in the literature. Okay. So this is something yeah. that we're starting to talk about and I'm seeing a lot on social media. First of all, I just hate the term in general. I just think from um, a medical standpoint, I get what they're trying to say, but it, it sucks. I have treated women in every body size with PCOS, like, and same with HA can't like, put on weight, can't take it off. Right. Yeah. Like really struggling on every end of the spectrum. So you can struggle with insulin resistance, which is interestingly, we think probably about 90% of people with PCOS have insulin resistance. And yet it's not part of the diagnostic criteria. So, so that's interesting. interesting. That's one of the asterisks I'm, I'm wanted to get to, but didn't, you know, lost my train of thought before. So you can struggle with insulin resistance and still be in a smaller body. Okay. So this idea of lean PCOS is oftentimes what I think people are trying to say is actually you struggle more with like a stress-based or inflammatory PCOS and not as much of the insulin ovary PCOS. Cause remember two out of the three high levels of androgens and no ovulation. You don't actually have to have polycystic ovaries. I very often times see when somebody struggles with all three, they're more often the person that's also struggling with their weight. Okay. So the people that aren't struggling with their weight tend to have really high levels of cortisol and really high levels of DHEAS, which both come from your adrenal gland. And they struggle more with managing the amount of stress their life is providing them or the world is providing their environment is providing them. Um, and so one thing that's interesting to know about DHEAS is this is a male hormone Huntress hormone, androgen, your adrenal gland makes, and it makes it kind of in a dose dependent relation to cortisol. So cortisol is that stress hormone. We think about, um, kind of adrenaline and that quick surge of stress when like the lion's chasing you, when that quick surge goes away, the cortisol takes over to help you deal with the stressful stuff after that lion stops chasing you. Well, then your body starts pumping out DHEAS to protect your brain from the amount of cortisol you're making. It literally like kind of stops the blood brain barrier from sending all the cortisol to your brain. So it's a protective mechanism. So if we can downregulate stress, and oftentimes I see this more in this kind of slimmer population, more of the quote unquote type a people mm -hmm. that I treat, if we can calm that stress fire, we can usually calm that androgen. And sometimes ovulation turns back on and Sometimes that doesn't even take nutrition. Sometimes that's more lifestyle, sleep, mm -hmm. breathing techniques, time in nature, Epsom mm -hmm. salt baths, like whatever that is for you, acupuncture. Um, I, I think blood sugar balance is a really interesting component to you can actually have high levels of cortisol if you're always spiking your blood sugar. So that's kind of, um, you know, gives that impression of insulin resistance, but oftentimes these are the people that when I'm actually looking at insulin and blood sugar, I don't see like a frank insulin resistance. Um, since I'm thinking about it, the other asterisks that I would give to this like diagnostic criteria to PCOS is we're starting to look at AMH levels. So mm -hmm. since you have a very like fertile specific population, um, AMH levels are something that we look at oftentimes for ovarian reserve, it's like one of the things we can do without actually doing a procedure to the body to like mm -hmm. knock on the door and see how many follicles are still left in an ovary. Well, this AMH anti-malarian hormone is something that small primordial follicles give off as they're just starting to mature. So it kind of gives us an idea of this, 
um, reserve that's still there. Very low AMH for your age may mean that you don't have a lot of follicles left. Okay. Okay. Very high levels don't actually necessarily mean you have tons of follicles. We're actually starting to look at it and say, if you have very high levels of AMH, you very well may have PCOS because what's happening is again, those follicles that get kind of arrested or stopped in their development process kind of, you know, there's the next ones that are on deck ready to be put pushed forward. And those are kind of stalled a little bit too, by how much testosterone and androgens are floating around. And so they're giving a lot of, of AMH off. So that like asterisk may be, if it's a questionable PCOS diagnosis, since we don't have this as a diagnostic criteria yet, let's look at that and see, is it trending really high? It's just kind of like another fingerprint mm-hmm. that it might be PCOS. It's like evidence around the picture to go. Maybe it is PCOS. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you've given a lot of routes for further testing, which is great. Right. Um, we haven't talked about post PCOS, oh, but I sorry. feel like there's, and we'll get into it. Okay. <laughs> I feel like there's going to be people listening who are now questioning either one, right? Like they're like, I need to know more. What's the, what are the next steps? If somebody goes to their doctor and they're diagnosed with PCOS and they're like, I don't know if this is me though. And they're going back and forth between, is it HA or is it PCOS? What are like, you know, the top five things you would have them test or like, maybe even some things to ask themselves. Yeah. That's a really good question. I love for anyone with PCOS to get fasting insulin and fasting glucose. So if you have those two labs, you can Google this. Um, and I can even give Lindsay a link to this. Um, there's a really cool calculator online where you can just go to this website. You put in these two numbers and it spits out a number called the HOMA IR number. And it's essentially a kind of like a, um, gauge for how insulin resistant you are, because you can be very insulin resistant before your fasting glucose numbers ever are too high to like creeping up to the point where we'd say, maybe you're pre-diabetic, maybe you're diabetic or before your A1C gets that high. And your A1C is something that we look at to see like, what have your average glucose levels been over a three month period. So if somebody's struggling with insulin resistance, they're not typically the person that I'm thinking has HA, right? Right. That's, that's kind of another fingerprint that it's potentially PCOS. Mm -hmm. So if you get these numbers and you go to this calculator and you have a HOMA IR score of like one or less, so 0.8, 0.9, 0.3, or even maybe one and a half or less, you're not insulin resistant. Between one and a half and like 1.9, you're starting to get insulin resistant. One and 0.9 to 2.9, it's insulin resistance. Above 2.9, it's significant. Most people I treat with PCOS are like above 1.9 or over. Some people who've like been following me for a while have started developing blood sugar friendly plates. Maybe they're implementing a supplement that's helpful for blood sugar. They may have actually already done some work to get that home IR score lower. So that's something to think about if you've been really intentional for a while, but if somebody were just like, I got a PCOS diagnosis, I'm wondering if it's HA, if it's PCOS answering the question, am I insulin resistant might be really helpful. The next thing that I'd look at is luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone. We call it LH follicle stimulating hormone, FSH. Um, not sure if you've talked about this on the podcast. I know that we both talk about it on Instagram, um, LH and FSH are pulsed from your brain and their target organs. So their hormones, their target organ is the ovary. And so basically they're telling the ovary when to make a follicle kind of grow and mature. And then they are a part of the signaling process that makes an, uh, follicle rupture from the ovary. So if you have very low FSH and very low LH, it's a little bit more of a HA picture. Now I've seen HA where they're not both very, very low. Um, if your LH is very low and your FSH is off the charts, that actually can be a sign of premature ovarian insufficiency or failure. Right. So may not be HA or PCOS. It could be early ovarian failure, which 
could mean early perimenopause or menopause. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting thing to have a discussion with your OB about. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love to ask you the question. Do you ever see low LH and high FSH and it's HA? Because sometimes if I get a picture like that, I'm like, we need to dig deeper and you need to get in touch with your OB because if you're trying to get pregnant, we may have a limited period of time here. It's a good question. And I was going to ask it back to you. If somebody gets those readings one time, is it worth retesting? Totally. Absolutely. That's usually what I would say too. And usually you want to test LH and FSH in my world on day three. So that can be really hard if you're not having a cycle, right? Like when is day three? When is day three? There's no, and so day three is the third day after a bleed that would be enough of a bleed for you to like wear a pad or a tampon or a period cup, right. it's enough of a bleed for you to do something. If you're wiping and it's just spotting, yeah, it's, that's not day one. Okay. Right. So a productive flow. So yes, I think it is worth retesting. And those are very inexpensive tests to pull. And if your doctor is balking at it, testing these things, these are very like rudimentary basic level tests, your family doctor or OB should be able to pull it. If they are questioning why you want these, you likely just need to find a different care provider. They're not (laughs) willing to be curious and dig through and like answer questions with you. Um, so looking at LH and FSH can be really interesting. The way it would present very differently is a lot of times in PCOS, we're seeing high levels of LH and normal levels of FSH. Now, they can be high out of range or high in comparison. So right. if, if your LH to FSH ratio is more like two to one or three to one, and you're at the very early part of your cycle, your body is pulsing a lot of the thing that's telling it to ovulate, but not enough of the thing telling it to make this follicle mature to be ovulated. So we have an issue. Not everyone with PCOS does have this two to one, three to one ratio, but it's very common and ovulation predictor tests are often testing only LH. Now, some of them also test estrogen and other things, but most of them only test LH. So if you're consistently seeing, I'm should be ovulating all the time. And you're, especially if you're not getting a period, it's, it's another kind of fingerprint that it might be PCOS. Yeah. Again, not diagnostic criteria. You don't Mm -hmm. hear this in how you diagnose, but it's kind of like you're building a case, like you're a lawyer and you're going to go to trial higher AMH, this ratio, I see insulin resistance, but you're bleeding all the time. So you don't fit that like anovulation. Maybe we don't see polycystic ovaries, but you have all these other fingerprints, but you don't have that two out of the three. Right. Mm -hmm. So the next thing that I often have somebody do is start actually cycle tracking with BBT. Cause if we can tell, oh, you, you are bleeding regularly, but you're not ovulating. You actually do have two of the three. So, yeah. um, sometimes, you know, just because you bleed doesn't mean you're ovulating. And that's like right. a, a message. I wish we could stand on a mountain everywhere and right. out because people waste years trying to get pregnant without help. And you know, the, the generic is if you're under 35, try for a year before you get testing or extra help and people in your world. And in my world, HA and PCOS could be wasting a year of their life when they're not ovulating. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I did want to say back on the LH, cause I hear that a lot too, you know, um, LH two to three times the amount of FSH is, is pointing more towards, um, PCOS than HA. But what I've observed in HA is somebody will go for labs, not on cycle day three, right? They'll just go like your doctor will be like, oh, let's just test labs. And what we'll see is that either they catch an LH surge or as your body's still recovering from HA and it's still figuring out, you know, how much hormone I need to send out. Yeah. They'll get, they'll get that, they'll get that profile and their doctor will say, oh, well you, you have PCOS. So I think context matters about when you're having labs done. You can't just Mm -hmm. look at one snapshot in time and say, this is what's going on. It's going to take what I'm hearing. It's just a lot of different data, a lot of different fingerprints, like you said, kind of putting your Mm -hmm. case together. Yeah. The other interesting thing is this hormone progesterone. So pro like positive gesterone gestate, like it's, it's the pregnancy 
hormone that makes pregnancy sustain. It's not, it's not human growth hormone that tells you that you're pregnant, but every month or every cycle, you should be making enough of this for your body to feel safe enough to let an embryo implant and to be pregnant. And you only make this after ovulation. Okay. You do have another hormone called 17 hydroxy progesterone that actually your adrenal gland makes and a really good thorough assessment. Again, diagnosis of exclusion, trying to figure out why you may not be ovulating, whether it's HA PCOS or something else, they should be looking at that. Cause that can be signs of a different issue. And so I've sent a lot of people and said, go get progesterone and 17 hydroxy progesterone pulled. And the doctor only pulls one because they don't Mm -hmm. see the value in excluding this other Mm -hmm. potential, or I'm sending them to go get progesterone to verify if they've ovulated and if their progesterone is high enough to even make pregnancy a chance and they pull the wrong progesterone. They pull the 17 hydroxy. So getting the right lab at the right point in the cycle is actually really important. And with PCOS, I I have a lot of patients that their doctor puts them on a progesterone medication because it is dangerous for a number of reasons to not ovulate enough in your lifetime and to not bleed enough in your lifetime. And they present different issues, but not bleeding enough, particularly in PCOS. I don't know the statistics on HA, so you could maybe tell me, but Um, it increases your risk for different uterine and cervical cancers. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times doctors are trying to, if somebody doesn't want to be on birth control because they're trying to get pregnant, they will put them on a progesterone cycle every 30 days you take it or every after you start bleeding 20 days later, you start taking it. And then when you stop taking it, it will stimulate a bleed. This is a non-ovulatory bleed. Well, this has merit and value. And actually I think not enough people with PCOS are being put on this kind of cycle to lower their risk of, um, cancer later on. But sometimes with PCOS, you can't ovulate. You're just not ovulating until day 45. So if every cycle we give you progesterone before your body gets to the point Mm -hmm. that it can try Mm -hmm. to ovulate, we are potentially never giving you a chance at natural conception when maybe your body could actually do it. I know at least one of my children was conceived on a very long cycle. I ovulated on like day 46 with my first and had a very healthy pregnancy and have a very healthy child. There was nothing wrong with that egg. It just took my body a little bit longer to rev up and ovulate. And so if we're always intervening early with progesterone, progesterone is going to stop you from ovulating if you haven't ovulated yet. Mm -hmm. And so while I do think it's important that we prevent and lower the risk of different uterine and female cancers later on, we also need to build the plan around a patient's goals and doing that type of progesterone medication and and withdrawal of that medication can be done at a 60 or a 90 day interval and give us a chance on getting your body to ovulate. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Especially for my clients that are trying to conceive, I usually recommend against using Provera because just like you said, your body could ovulate. And when we take it, we're basically saying, you know, you don't have a chance this cycle. Um, I will oftentimes tell people, you know, I can't tell you when to take a prescription or when not to take it. I can advise you. I can educate you. I can send you back to your doctor and help support you advocating for the best care for your body and your goals. Right. And, um, so a lot of times I will be helping people ask their doctor for it so that Mm -hmm. in 90 days, if you haven't ovulated, we can shed your lining that actually also has some benefits for implantation later on. Right. So, you know, sometimes I'm advocating like, okay, let's give your body three months. If you don't ovulate, we should shed your lining. And then we start over. It doesn't really take that many days out of the game Mm -hmm. or I'll advise them. Hey, your doctor wants you doing this every 30 days. Why don't you go back to your doctor and ask, can we have 60 or 75 days, get closer to that 90 day mark? Are you comfortable with that? So that we can give you a chance. Mm-hmm. To ovulate. So it's funny. It's sometimes I'm advocating on both sides of it. Like yeah. you should be lowering your risk. Right. You know, not right. okay. I, I hear so many stories like yours where it's like, I didn't have a period for 12 years. It's like, okay, well that's not healthy either. <laughs> right. Yeah. And what I would say too, is cause I do hear that method, um, of treating 
HA, like they're basically treating PCOS, but they're, but I've heard HA, you know, kind of being treated in that manner of, oh, well, we'll just give you progesterone so you can bleed every, you know, so often, um, depending upon how severe, nothing. Yeah. That's what I was about to say, depending upon how severe your HA is, um, there's no, it may not be necessary for you to shed a lining if you don't basically have a lining, right? right? You're not making enough estrogen to build a lining. Why do why do the step? Yeah. Yeah. So the same risks for like endometrial cancer may not be there. If again, you weren't even, you know, your hormones are also just kills me this like one, you know, solution for masses, right? Like, you know, both of these conditions, not always, but most of the time, can be improved with diet and lifestyle, which is a perfect case, segue. Cause I feel like we've been talking supplements about too, yeah. then maybe you might do, but like, so why birth control? Why Provera? Why IVF? Why make somebody waste not only time, but thousands of dollars, mm. so much emotions and maybe not even have a quality outcome, like a live baby at the end of it. You know, it's like such a gamble in a sense when we haven't even tried these lower risk, arguably easier interventions. I mean, Lindsay and I are not asking you to inject yourself with shots. We're not asking you, you know, it's like, I'm not doing a procedure on you. Most of the time I can get somebody to ovulate with just food. Right. (laughs) You know, so why sometimes people do need more, but why start there? Like, why not every pregnancy is going to be benefited by food is medicine, right? Why are we not starting there? Yeah. Why does every fertility clinic not have a dietitian on payroll? I don't know. I know it's wild. It's wild. I mean, I think that they probably have some decent statistics with medicine. And so in their mind, it might be, if it's not broke, don't fix it. They're also probably making a ton of money, a ton of money. It's not messy, right? Like it's hard to do the work you're doing, helping hold somebody's hand through changes that like, so intertwine with their identity. Mm -hmm. It's same with me. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm an emotional eater. I can binge Mm -hmm. through a bag of Mm -hmm. chips at night. I, I hide food in the fast food. You know, it's like, that doesn't mean you have PCOS, but I see binge eating really overlapping with it. And that's messy work. And doctors, frankly, don't ask enough questions to even know it's a problem on board. Right. So, and I shouldn't say that not all doctors, but by and large, at least the people that are coming to me for help, they have not been thoroughly assessed. And so we're not, we're actually not treating the root of the problem most of the time. Yeah. And it is messy work, but like how much more full life do you have on the other side when you're really addressing what? is causing your hormonal imbalance problems rather than just taking medication to get you to your end goal, whether that's having a regular period, a regular period, I'm using heavy air quotes here or a baby. Well, um, and in your case, like the risks of osteoporosis later on osteopenia fracturing, you know, your hip at 70, because you didn't make enough progesterone in your lifetime to build healthy bones because you didn't ovulate because you weren't eating enough or you were over-exercising like Similarly with PCOS, there are some really scary risk factors that are increased when you have PCOS diagnosis, diabetes, heart disease, anxiety, you know, fatty liver disease, things that can really change the quality of your life. So yes, I think you and I both work in this fertility space, but the changes that we help people make also help them live healthier complete lives. And, you know, like I always say to a patient, like I'm looking at you and I know your goal is pregnancy, but my goal for you is if you want to healthy breastfeeding Mm -hmm. and running on the playground with your kid and Mm -hmm. walking your daughter down the aisle and rocking your grandbaby. Like I see you 30 years from now and the changes that are going to help turn on your fertility. Cause you and I both help people turn their fertility back on. That's what PCOS and HA have done different reasons why fertility is off, but fertility is stopped. Right. Mm -hmm. We turn that back on, but we're also offering like here, this is the way to lead a healthy life so that you don't maybe end up with a heart attack at 60 or 
you know, a stroke that's going to leave you half your body paralyzed. Like so much more is at stake. And frankly, PCOS at least is talked about still like it's a fertility issue. only. Mm. OBs are generally, it's changing a little bit, but OBs are generally the diagnosing provider. And so, and even the advice I got given 16 years ago, like, you know, you 18 years ago, go on birth control. When you're ready to get pregnant, come back. Like nobody told me my risk of fatty liver disease. Nobody was talking Mm -hmm. about it. So Mm -hmm. we're offering so much more than just returning your fertility back on when truly that's like the biggest gift you could almost ever give somebody. Right. But it's so much more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with the time that we have left for someone listening who does have PCOS, my God, it is a rabbit hole. If you start Googling, how do I reverse fix whatever my PCOS with nutrition, Caitlin, what does the research say? Is it all about restriction? Is it all about gluten-free, dairy-free? Give us, give us the fact. Don't there's like one very low quality, very low cohort study on limiting dairy and PCOS two actually, but one that I would even ever cite. And it was, um, shown to help improve acne. If you limited your dairy, what's interesting when you overlap fertility with PCOS, we do know that full fat dairy can be really helpful for, um, obtaining vitamins that are helpful for fertility. Mm-hmm. So cutting out dairy really like eliminates some really awesome options for blood sugar balance or fat soluble vitamins that are a little bit more difficult to get from other foods, unless you love eating liver or fatty fish. So, um, yeah, restriction is not the key to winning at life with PCOS, no matter what your goal is. First of all, it's not fun. It's not sustainable. There's not one study yet. That doesn't mean it couldn't come out there. There's not one study linking benefits to getting rid of gluten for PCOS. Um, my, my work with clients is kind of like four pillars, nutrient density with blood sugar balance. So we're trying to just get a colorful plate, lots of fiber, good quality fats and enough protein. Okay. Um, circadian rhythm support because actually sleep light cycles really affect your female hormones and it can be really impactful to getting you ovulating again. Movement quality doesn't have to be crazy. You don't have to run a half marathon. You don't have to be a CrossFitter. Like you can walk daily. Um, it helps with resensitizing your body to insulin. And so what the research really points to is that For many with PCOS, high levels of insulin, your body becomes resistant to it. Your ovaries do not, they soak it up and insulin tells cells to take in energy. So your ovaries are like, give me all that energy. And what they do in turn is they produce too much testosterone and that can stop ovulation causes the follicles causes a lot of the issues. Now it's not the only way that it, the only ideology, but that's kind of like a reader's digest version. So movement and blood sugar balance are really key for lowering insulin levels and turning back on ovulation. They also are like the long game at improving your symptoms. Um, and then stress management and supplements can help. They only working on stress management and only taking supplements. Isn't really going to get it done. If you're still, you know, have a, Frappuccino in the morning with a bagel, uh, Alfredo lunch and, you know, hamburger and chips for dinner, like the nutrient density and the carbohydrate balance there, there's not enough for blood sugar balance. That's really going to get to the root of PCOS. So I focus on all of those things and I help people that are trying to get pregnant or just want to manage their PCOS. And so like contextually, I teach it a little bit differently, right? Like if we're just trying to get rid of your acne and help you have more energy and feel better, that's very different than I need you to be um, safe when you're trying to conceive, we can get rid of your acne with a prescription called spironolactone, but that can cause birth defects. So I do have different resources online 
based on the context of somebody's goals. Um, mm-hmm. because you know, some medications aren't safe. Some supplements aren't safe. Some mm-hmm. supplements are really helpful. So, um, you know, we always want patient specific goals to dictate what our interventions are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what I love the most about what you've talked about, how you treat PCOS is, it's just very holistic. So often people are looking for a diet or a lot of times I hear people being told by their physician, well, the, the way you, you have PCOS, you just need to lose weight, which I think you already used this word earlier. That's just lazy medicine, right? Lazy like they're medicine. not even. Yeah. And you know what? The person on. that they're usually saying that to knows they need to lose weight and has tried everything. And that's not and, helpful. And that, you know what, it's what I have found working in this population. And I'm so inspired by women just in general, all that we do in life is they are incredibly resilient and have a lot of willpower actually. And so Mm -hmm. doctors are just thinking like, oh, she overeats and she sits on the couch all day long. And that's not what she does. She's been eating weight watchers. She's done keto. She tried Mm -hmm. CrossFit. She's been doing a 1200 calorie diet on Noom and she's actually under eating for what she needs and maybe even over exercising. And there might be a layer of HA on top of PCOS. Like, so when like me getting told to lose weight, like I was running 20 to 25 miles a week, gaining 20 pounds a month, something was not right. There was a hormonal disconnect. And so just being told to lose weight, like that flabbergasts my patient population. And you know what else it does? It makes them not want to go back to their doctor who they need. They right. need good, regular cholesterol panels. They need sometimes medications for other things, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. so, but they're afraid to go to the doctor because they're going to get fat shamed. Right. Yeah. I mean, weight stigma, this could be a whole nother topic, but I think it's interesting how weight stigma plays into misdiagnosis in both cases. Somebody mm-hmm. who simply exists in a larger body could go in and a doctor takes one look at them and they say you have PCOS. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, on the flip side, somebody in a larger body who is really active, has a really disordered relationship with food could again, get that misdiagnosis and actually be struggling with HA. You know, it's just totally, you can't make an assumption about what's going on with somebody's body, um, based on its size. Or like you talked about, you know, not every person that has PCOS is in a larger body too. Like that's oh just, my gosh. it's just, I just see lazy medicine everywhere. And it just frustrates me so much. Even myself who like, I feel like I like wear a badge that says I'm going to advocate for myself. So don't F with me. <laughs> I go to the doctor five months postpartum, not sleeping, no nanny doing really emotional work. And I walked in, I was like, I think I have anxiety. Like I had postpartum anxiety after my first, I think it's borderline like coming back. And I went to a really dark place before I don't want to go there again. And you know what this new doctor told me to do exercise every day. <laughs> like, here's one more thing to do when your life is when you're already hard for you to manage. And I was like, no, 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 that won't happen for like a year. I bet. So, and it probably won't be every day at that. So what else? She's like, well, the only other thing I have up my sleeve is medication. I was like, great. What's, what's breastfeeding safe. Like I'm asking for help. She says, well, what one would you like? And I'm like, just because I'm a dietitian doesn't mean I know what's safe or right. Or the best fit for me. Like ask me some damn questions. So, you know, it's like, it's everywhere. What kills me is that it's happening to somebody that maybe doesn't know how to advocate for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you go into the doctor and like, they're more looking at the computer and typing their note to save time than looking at you and actually being curious. So my biggest recommendation to anyone, no matter what their health goal is, and especially if they're a woman is to get a doctor that is curious, that will ask questions that looks you in the eye that takes you serious even if they don't know the answer that's willing to say, I know somebody who does, or I will look into that and I will get back to you. If you do not have a curious provider, you are worth so much more and you deserve questions asked to help you get to the bottom of what's going on. And you are the expert of your body. You probably know your diagnosis before you even walk in. Honestly, you have all the keys to your health. You just need somebody you feel comfortable with 
discussing mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. And I always tell people too, it's not necessarily that your doctor has to be 1000% on board with what me or Caitlin is, you know, telling you to do to manage your condition. They can at least respect, just like you said, that you're the expert in your own body. And if you're working with someone that you truly believe can help you to heal what's going on with you, they need to at least be supportive of that. Mm -hmm. When you asked earlier, like what labs to ask for, what I find is interesting is I, I have kind of like a list people can download if they're interested in seeing if they have PCOS and I had an interesting conversation over Instagram with a doctor who said, I love this list. What would concern me is if somebody just asked me for this list and I didn't know that they had a capable provider to help them interpret the data. Cause she said, I'm not comfortable interpreting fasting insulin numbers. I'm not Mm -hmm. comfortable interpreting progesterone levels. And I was like, great. I just wish doctors would be honest about that so that somebody could say, okay, I need a different doctor. I need a specialist. I need this dietitian that knows how to interpret them. Like, you know, and I think that some people are maybe running into roadblocks like that because the physicians, like, I don't have experience in that. And if we, if they're not comfortable saying that, and their answer is just, no, I won't run those labs. Maybe it's time to ask the question. Why not? Oh, it's just expensive your insurance won't pay for it. Okay. Well then if that's the answer, dig deeper, will your insurance not pay for it? Or do you need to go to a self-pay lab where it's much less money anyway? Or, you know, is it that they're not, they don't know how to interpret it. So Mm -hmm. sometimes it's like getting to the root of the doctor's issue. too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that that's so helpful. So many great takeaways and hopefully whoever's listening has at least the next step to know, okay, what do I need tested? What do I need to be exploring? What do I need to be asking if they're still confused on HA and PCOS? And if somebody is feeling more confident that they do in fact have PCOS, Caitlin, what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you do and how you work with people? Yeah. So I, um, like everyone, I think these days I have a pretty active Instagram account. We post at least once a day, typically really valuable information there. So that's at PCOS fertility nutrition, no spaces, no dots, no nothing, just PCOS fertility nutrition. Um, I also have a free fertility podcast with another functional medicine dietitian, same name. Just go look for the two dietitians laughing on the beach. <laughs> food freedom and fertility. Um, and we have a great episode with Lindsay on that about HA. So, um, that's a great resource too. And my website, which is uh, pcosfertilitynutrition.com. And I'm just this year, like one of my business goals is blogging more. So I'm, that's I'm awesome. like one of the things I have on the books is PCOS versus HA as a diagnosis. Yes. Um, maybe we could collaborate on that. Yeah. I would and, love to help. Um, my other new way of reaching the masses is I started a YouTube channel last week. So, oh, good for you. You're all over the place. Nutrition. So it's like super rudimentary, but maybe we could do an interview sometime, um, to go on that. Lindsay, that would be awesome too. Yeah. I'd love that too. Well, great. Well, thanks so much for your time, Caitlin, um, and sharing all of your information and appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. If you found this episode to be inspiring or helpful, please share on social media and tag me at food.freedom.fertility. Also, don't forget to leave a rating and a review. 